Hallelujah. We thank you, Father, that you have sent the Holy Spirit to prepare the way of the Lord, even in our own hearts. We know from the teaching of our Lord and Savior that the different soils that represent the human heart are more often than not fraught with every reason for failure, for the crop to yield fruit. But there is that exception when the Spirit does His fertilizing work, wherein the seed that is planted of God's Holy Word is, takes root and foothold in the soul of a sinner and produces fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. We recognize that this is because our Lord can do a miracle of regeneration in the heart of a once-dead sinner. We confess, all believers in this room, that we were lost in our transgressions, but Christ found us. We were the sheep who was gone astray, but our great shepherd hunted us down. We were the seed that was never going to produce fruit or the soil that would remain fruitless until the Holy Spirit tilled that fallow ground. And then the Word of God sprung alive in our souls. We thank you, Lord, that this was because of your great work. The same power that raised Lazarus from the dead was quickened unto us in our regeneration and will once again raise us from the dead, Lord Jesus, at your second coming. We thank you that we have these glorious promises assured to us in the infallible word of Christ. And now this morning as we turn to its pages, those who have been brought to life from the uh, condition of sin, we pray that we would be greatly encouraged and strengthened, emboldened, and that the foundations of our faith would be all the more secure through the proclamation of your scriptures. For the lost that may be encountering the hearing of the word of God, and the hearing of this message, either in this place today, or elsewhere via recording technology, or who, who knows, Lord, suffice it to say that without the proclamation of your word, the hearing of the same, repentance and faith, there is no hope of salvation. So we pray that as the beacon of truth goes out through the proclamation of your word, through the preaching of the same, that you would gather for yourself more, Lord Jesus, more harvest into the barns of plenty that will one day populate the new heavens and new earth. We pray that you would bring sinners unto repentance, that the lost would see their great transgression in light of the proclamation of a holy God, and that we would bow before the Lordship of Christ, knowing that he is sovereign and Savior. We thank you, Jesus, that you have died for us, and we see evidence represented at your table today of the very cost of our soul's salvation, your body and your blood. We pray, therefore, that you would be magnified in our attention, our affections, our understanding, and our profession as a result of your word going forth today. May it produce fruit under the glorification of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, what a glorious blood-bought privilege it is for us to turn to the Holy Scriptures, to gather our thoughts and to focus our attention and to ground our faith according to the anchor of our souls, Jesus Christ, as he is revealed in his truth, in his holy word. Would you turn with me today to 1 Peter 3? And in a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's word, particularly verses 8 through 17. The title of this morning's message is Zealous for Good. There was a call to Christian conduct that we have been considering for a few messages now. That begins in 1 Peter chapter 2 with these words. The apostle declares, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And then verse 12 continues this admonition saying, 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What do good deeds, honorable conduct among the Gentiles of pagan society look like? Well, the rest of the context gives us examples. Among them, three institutions that Peter speaks to and how to glorify God by embracing the gospel according to each. And following this, we have some general admonitions that brings up our text today in verses 8 through 17. uh, The Apostle Peter begs us according to these means. He calls our attention. He adjures us to be zealous for good. Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Zealous means an eagerness, an energy applied, an ambition, a focus, a drive. And of course, goodness is righteousness, that which God upholds and endorses and requires and allows us to embrace as believers of Him. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to exhort and equip the church unto godliness despite the cost. May we, through the hearing of God's word, be better equipped to exhort and exhorted to be the church, in fact, that we would be exhorted unto godliness despite the cost. With that introduction, would you stand out of reverence for God's word and let us consider 1 Peter 3, 8 through 17. Here is the holy word of the Lord. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. May the face of the Lord, or but the face of the Lord, is against those who do evil. Verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Having explained, Peter, having explained how Christians, Christian convictions relate to our testimony through human institutions, and he has cited three examples uh, prior to our text today. The first institution is civil government, second, servitude, and thirdly, marriage. Having given us instructions as to what godly and Christian convictions look like with respect to interacting in these three human institutions, which make up a few examples of order, or, uh, uh, relationships in any given social order. The Apostle Peter then extends his appeal for Christian conduct in more general terms. Hence, we have verse 8 giving us this language, finally, all of you. So in general, in summary terms, he lists these virtues that follow. 
He encourages the church to embrace and display godly virtue in all their dealings. Now, given Peter's own experience, so think of the Apostle Peter and the sufferings that he's already endured. The aim of this morning's message is to equip and encourage us unto godliness despite the cost. One might ask the question, what cost, for righteousness' sake, did Peter pay? Well, already at the writing of this letter, we have seen in the book of Acts a certain price and a certain cost that Peter suffered for the name of Jesus Christ. Already he has been in prison. Already he has been persecuted. And there's even language within First and Second Peter that indicate he thinks that he is going to be killed for his faith. And likely these are some of his last words and admonitions he will be able to give the church. So hence he knows, both from his experience, the apostle knows, as well as the teachings of his master, Jesus Christ, that he need not be naive. He knows that these elect exiles, these believers that he's writing to, have encountered resistance to their faith, and they will likely face more persecution in the future. Hence his name for them. And kids, what does uh, Peter call believers in this book again? Who are we, according to Peter? The main term he uses for us? Elect exiles is correct. And just to, re to jog your memory, kids remind us we are elect because God has chosen us and we are exiles because Yes, we are exiles because we are far from home. Do you guys remember that? There's another word that Peter uses to describe us as well in 2.11. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So even in the terms <clears throat> whereby Peter addresses the church, sojourners, exiles, and uh, the elect, there is something unique about our call that is indicated by these three terms. God has called us to be different out from a society that does not share our values, hence election. God has called us to be unique, hence exile. Far from home, there is something yet on the future, on the horizon. Sojourners, we are traveling. We are in between redemption and glorification. And so this is the uh, context, spiritually speaking, and the course of a believer's life that First Peter addresses. So given his own experience and the teaching of his master, he knows that elect exile believers have encountered resistance to their faith, and they will likely face more persecution. So given the hostile and sinful culture that surrounds them, he writes accordingly. Thus, honorable conduct among the Gentiles must take into account what righteous behavior looks like in the face of intense opposition. In other words, all the way back in 12 again, when Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, the church is going to need to know what honorable conduct looks like when they're facing persecution, when people are when they are in conflict with the popular ideas and notions and influence, influences around them in the culture in which they live. Hence, First Peter is directed to a situation just like this, and I'm sure there are many instances in our own experience where we can relate, can we not? Before making an application in context of an idolatrous society, however, in our passage today, Peter reminds the Church of Asia Minor that they ought to consider their ways first and foremost in light of the eyes and ears of God. This is a helpful way I find, or along these lines, a helpful way to divide our text today is in two major headings, facing God and facing culture. Here's a major heading, Christians or elect exile conduct facing God or before God 
or in light of his presence. And secondly, considering Christian conduct in light of a hostile culture. What does the Christian life look like considering that it is unpopular and disapproved of often when we're surrounded by sinners and great wickedness? So this is a basic structure for our text. The first point, facing God, verses 8 through 12. The second, facing culture, verses 13 through 17. In this order of things, Peter is making, before making an application of how to interact in an idolatrous culture, he is careful to draw the attention of believers and reminding them that they live their lives in the face of God. He makes his case along these lines, citing the words of David from Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. And this reference is instructive on many levels, giving the calling of David himself and the endurance that was required of David. You remember there was a calling and an anointing on his life, but there was quite a while until he actually realized that throne and that king, kingly call. In the meantime, endurance was required for him along the path of providence in David's life. Then ultimately, Peter closes this section pointing once again to the son of David. And we'll close with these points later and transition into communion. Uh, kids, who is the son of David? Uh, Jesus is the correct answer. That's right. So uh, Peter closes this section pointing to the son of David and reminding the church of every age, regardless of any difficulties that we encounter, that the ministry of Jesus, the son of David, models and proves redemptive purpose in suffering. So we are reminded of this in 1 Peter 3, and later at the close of this service, we will be reminded of this at the Lord's table as well. Again, our major heading today, Christian conduct or elect exile conduct. Number one, facing God or before God or in His presence, considering His approval. Verses 8 through 12, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And then there's an appeal to Scripture that Peter had in hand at his time. And he cites Psalm 34 in these next three verses. But notice the close of verse 12 there in 1 Peter 3, 12. It says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is a poetic way of saying that God's face is turned in friendship, in fellowship, and in favor upon those who walk in godliness, who are the faithful elect exiles who are living out the evidence of that salvation. To them, the Lord smiles in their direction. But those who are among the ungodly and fall outside this camp and are content to do evil, the Lord's face is against them. It makes all the difference in the world where you stand in light of the face of God. What does it mean to live before the face of God and to do so self-consciously realizing that you answer to a holy and authoritative sovereign over you? In the Latin, the phrase is quorum Deo. I'll teach you maybe two Latin phrases today. Quorum Deo. What does it mean? It means in the face of God. And this is a Latin phrase that is common in, throughout the church age as a reminder in liturgical and worshipful language to, re, to never forget the fact 
that the believer lives his life in light of God's attention. R.C. Sproul said it this way, what does quorum Deo mean? What does it mean to live in the face of God, he says? To live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. Peter is announcing to the church, he's reminding the church, he's calling their attention to the fact that they live in the face of God. They live quorum Deo. They ought to live self-consciously, fully aware that their entire life is before the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. Now, how does our life change if we are aware of this perspective and we make decisions accordingly? Well, for one thing, we begin to display a slate of godly attributes. These are virtues that attend those who realize that they live in light of the presence of God, again, under His authority and to His glory. Verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, number one, sympathy, number two, brotherly love, number three, a tender heart, number four, and a humble mind, number five. Living before the face of God, acknowledging His presence, and letting that sink into our souls and motivate our actions will produce these kinds of virtues. I think about their contrast for a moment, would you? Now, we live in an age where the public square has moved into a virtual realm, so to speak. You think of social media, the internet, Twitter, and so forth. And uh, what is the tenor of these forums? What is a uh, tenor or the habitual that sort of habitual condition, if you will, of public discourse featured in the modern public square. Is it marked by unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind? More often than not, the conversations that are featured in the culture, in the public square, display, in fact, may I submit, the polar opposite. I'm sure you would agree, at least in the main. What is the opposite of these five virtues? Well, things like double-mindedness, rather than a unity of mind, complete confusion as to where to find our bearings, and a thousand claims to authority, and an absolute mess when it comes to who should we listen to, who has the real hope for the future, and where should the grounding of our faith and assurance and security and safety lie, just to name a few examples. Secondly, spitefulness. It seems that people are much more motivated to communicate their spiteful hatred and their strife for one another than they are to show sympathy to their fellow man. Thirdly, a sort of social unrest boiling underneath the surface, a sort of tinderbox of ungodliness and wickedness that easily catches the flame of resentment, taking the shape of Molotov cocktails, marching in the streets, setting fire to public buildings and otherwise, and even violence breaking out and social unrest, strife, tensions, class war, conflict has been inciting, and all of this, virtually all of this, in the name of supposed virtue. This is what justice looks like? I'm not so sure. Social unrest is, in fact, the opposite of brotherly love. Fourthly, a jaded cynicism. Rather than a tender heart who is listening closely so as to hear the voice of the Lord communicated through His special revelation in Scripture, and whispered to us in the beauty of his general revelation and creation, 
How many of our minds, if we let them be influenced by the tenor of the public forums of our day, become cynical and jaded? We become hardened and negative of thought and mind rather than tenderhearted and receptive to the voice of the Lord. And finally, rather than a humble mind, which is a mark of those who live Coram Dale in the face of God, most of us in this culture more often are self-obsessed. There is an absolute captivation and self-idolatry that people uh, worship these days, wherein they act as though they are the center of their universe. What happens when you get a few million people all trying to live in the same nation that each think they're the center of the universe? Well, you're finding out. It is chaos, bedlam, tension, unrest, double-mindedness, spite, and a jaded cynicism that pervades the whole scenario. So you see a very stark contrast, do you not? When we live before the face of God, in light of His glory, in light of His authority, there is a leavening, there is a sanctifying effect it has on the soul. And suddenly, our appetites that were once driven and captivated and enslaved to these negative things like double-mindedness, spite, social unrest, jaded cynicism, and self-obsession begin to change. There's another vice list along these lines that Peter gives in 2.1. He says the following, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. There again, there's five more examples of the polar opposites of the virtues that are listed in chapter 3. But living before the Lord in light of His glory and power and authority motivates us to put these things away. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. So before the, living before the face of God means a whole new lifestyle, embracing it as such. Second point under the face of God, calling and blessing. Verse 9, Peter instructs us, he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. When we recognize as believers, elect exiles, chosen unto salvation by the Lord, called out to confession of faith and hope in Jesus Christ by the power of the resurrecting Holy Spirit, when we realize that, we have a sense, if we understand our salvation, of calling. God has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. He has washed us free from the miry clay of self-worship and set our feet upon the rock, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is truly a calling unto which He has uh, called us. He has set His love and affection upon us. He has washed our sins away. He has declared us a new creation. Think of the terms that Peter himself uses to describe our new condition. Chapter 2, verse 9 gives a few. But you are a chosen race. Are we not called out as a new ethnicity or new people, so to speak? So we see even in the language here. Furthermore, you are a royal priesthood. You have a special significance to represent a holy king. You are the priesthood. You are a body representing. You are an ambassador who stands for, who proclaims the uh, works and the mighty salvation of Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Furthermore, you are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Here's the, again that language of calling. The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here again, the before and after picture. Once you were not a people, 
but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now this is the perspective that Peter adjures us to maintain the before and after picture of sovereign calling. Now when you consider who you are in Christ, that your identity as a people and your fellowship with the brother and sister in Christ that is seated next to you, the saints who've gone before and all who God will gather in the future unto a glorious waterfall of holy praise uh, populating the new heavens and the new earth in glory one day, how does that change your attitude? Is it not easier, considering this truth, to have unity of mind, sympathy for others, a brotherly love for those who have been saved by grace alone, fighting next to you in this war to advance the kingdom of God and oppose the enemy at every turn? Does it not move your heart to more tenderness, appreciating the great cost of your salvation paid by your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And does it not move you to have a more humble mind, recognizing that you are a people for His possession? When you were worthless, He paid the highest price to buy you back from destruction, hell, sin, the grip of Satan himself. Praise His holy name. Therefore, in light of this, 1 Peter 2.9 says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him, and living according to the excellencies of God is further expounded in 3.8, wherein these virtues are featured, unity of mind, sympathy, brother love, brotherly love, and the like. In this sense of calling, we have one who went before us and was called as well. Peter is, uh, points this out on many occasions. One example is chapter 2. In chapter 2.21, he speaks as follows. He committed no sin, neither was, or I should back up to 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We can pause right there and realize that the pattern of Christ's unique calling establishes for us that there is purpose in our own unique calling. As Christ was called to suffer for a purpose, if God has ordained trials, sorrows, and suffering for you, you also are called for a purpose. This is what he's getting at in verse 9 when he says that you are blessed, for to this you were called that you might obtain a blessing. What is the blessings that he speaks of? Well, in verse 10, he cites a couple from Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. There is a love of life and there is a redemption of one's days, a goodness to one's days, a fulfilling existence, if you will, that is one of the major blessings that elect exiles share when they realize their life lived in the face of God. And these are just a few examples that we see in the context here of the calling and blessing that we have in Christ. Now, this calling certainly takes faith. Consider the significance of Psalm 34 cited by First Peter in the or by Peter in this text. You could turn there with me if you, if you like, in, in Psalm 34, verses uh, 12 through 16 are in view from this psalm. This is the passage where David writes, 
What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? And then continuing with the citation that Peter quotes, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. But let's rewind to the title of this psalm. Notice who's writing and the occasion for this song. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. When did David write this song? He wrote it during a time when he changed his behavior before a king, a pagan king, Abimelech, so that he, the king, drove David out and David went away. For a little more background, you can study in your own time, 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15. But let me remind you, David is on the run. David has been anointed years prior to be king of Israel, but he has become a fugitive in his own land. The present king Saul has grown insane, quite literally, and he is resentful and he wants to kill David because he knows that David is the rightful heir to his throne. So David is forced to run away in his own homeland from the king of that area that wants to take his life. So he spends his life, days and nights, watching out for himself and his men as a fugitive. And there are times when he even seeks refuge in neighboring countries. Among them was Abimelech, kind of disguising himself and trying to slip between the cracks. And then King Abimelech figures out who he is and calls him into his courts, and David feigns insanity. He pretends to be crazy and drools on himself and so forth. And the king says, get this crazy man out of my sight. And this is hardly the behavior of an anointed king, is it? In other words, yes, David was called. But David was not only called to be king, he was called to endure suffering on his way from anointing or from calling unto glory, as it were. And this was a pattern in the life of David that would be repeated and fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Beginning with a calling, God's appointment, and then there's suffering unto glory. And this is a picture in the life of David that precedes Psalm 34, making it a very appropriate psalm for Peter to quote. This is a pattern that Jesus exemplified for us and Peter points to when he was called to suffer, and it is also a pattern for us, and we can draw great encouragement and hope from this. Remember, living in the face of God, before his authority, before his glory, and in his presence, Living before him means recognizing that he has divinely ordered sorrows, difficulties, and sufferings even in your life unto the praise of his name. And we were, as someone mentioned in prayer, even this morning, that reminder from 2 Corinthians that this great affliction is working in us an eternal weight of glory. That is, the sufferings of this life prepare us to actually behold the glory of the next. And so this is part and parcel to the calling and blessing of those who realize that they live before the face of the Lord, Coram Deo, under His authority and for His glory. These things, these notions ought to affect our words, our actions, and our ambitions. That would be in your notes, and those are just three categories that are expounded in this citation in Psalm 34, from Psalm 34. Notice 10b. Let him keep his tongue from evil, and his lips from speaking deceit. So living before the face of God and applying these godly virtues, one practical aspect is our own speech. We should condition, we should be mindful of what we say, <clears throat> the use of our own tongue, and pray that it would be that our tongues would speak more 
things in accordance with the unity of mind and sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and humility, and so forth. Our words are a point of application wherein living in the face of God, we are to apply godly virtues. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. This would be the category of actions. Turning away, living a life of repentance, shunning evil, and rejecting that which the enemy would tempt us with and distract us with. Those old ways of thinking, that which is the polar opposite of these virtues, that which is more in accordance with the malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and so forth of the old life. Let us turn away from doing evil in our actions, in our decisions, and instead do good. Let us seek peace, for instance, and pursue it. After all, we worship the Prince of Peace. So let us join the program of our King, of our Sovereign, of our Prince, and let us be peacemakers. Finally, ambitions. Verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. Or I should say ambitions is included in verse 11. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Something as a goal or something set before you as a, a, uh, something to reach and work towards is represented in this language. Suffice it to say, our whole life should be reformed and continually be changed according to the word and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to reflect more godliness in word and action and motivation. There is, in closing in this first section, this concept of divine countenance that uh, David refers to and Peter quotes in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I have another cross-reference for you. Turn with me as you're able to Numbers chapter 6, a very central text in Scripture is often cited and alluded to, and it's sometimes called the priestly prayer of Aaron. Do you guys remember Moses' brother Aaron and the special job that God gave him? Yeah. Kids, do you remember? What was Aaron's special job? You guys remember? Not a shepherd. Aaron was called to be what? Of God's people. Say again? Protector? Protector? Getting closer maybe? Moses was the prophet, he was the leader, and Aaron was to be the high priest. High priest. In Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, we have this benediction or prayer of blessing that the Lord spoke to Moses. Verse 23, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, you shall say to them. And here is Aaron's priestly prayer. Verse 24, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Verse 27, So shall they put My name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So what does this mean? Well, this is a prayer that the people of God would be mindful of His face, Coram Deo, that the answer to the most important prayer would be true of God's people, that they would live in the favor of the Lord, and it is pictured by His countenance smiling, if you will, upon them. In the past, when we've expounded this concept, I've often used the illustration of a father coming home from work. Dads, if you have little kids who love to greet you at the door, it's such a precious age 
that toddler age where their mind is so focused, less distracted with, uh, you know, whatever, gaming consoles and everything else that kind of complicate the parent-child relationship with all kinds of distractions. When your kids are still toddlers and they're waiting for you to get home, you open the door and you see that little face, you know, and you see that huge smile, arms outstretched, running towards you. And what is your response, fathers? You stretch out your arms. There's a smile on your face. Perhaps you stoop a little low and then you embrace at the end of that period uh, where you are apart and you hug and hold and smile and you maybe throw up in the air and you laugh and you ask a question or two of your child. This is what it's like for your child to live in your countenance, in your face as it were, in the face of their father. It's this joyful acknowledgement of a sweet and precious and intimate communion, relational bond that is stronger than anything else, so to speak. And this is the idea of living before the face of the Lord. Not just the fearful face of the Lord, although that is part of it, in His power and His authority, but also in the sweet communion that is represented at His very table. Let me put it this way. If you as a believer are invited to the communion table, and you are if you're a believer, if you've considered the weight of this day, if you're appropriately coming forward to take communion later, you as a believer are invited by a loving Father who in these elements has stretched out His arms and has smiled with His face and has welcomed you into His loving grasp eternally. This is what it means to live in the face of God and to have his divine countenance shine upon you. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. They are trained upon them in loving devotion. Even as his eyes are flaming with the fire of holiness, those who realize that they share in the righteousness of Christ see in those eyes the love of a Savior who has died for them. And his ears are open to their prayer. And the swiftness of our Heavenly Father, or the swiftness of our Advocate and High Priest, Jesus Christ, in going before our Heavenly Father, bearing our burdens and representing us before Him, we can trust because He has set His affection upon us and His ears are open to our prayer if we can be assured of the face of the Lord and His countenance rising upon us. And where is that assurance? That assurance is in Jesus Christ who has paid the price for the countenance of the Lord to shine in smiling affirmation, in love and acceptance through His body and through His blood upon you. The Christian conduct is meant to grow and to be applied when we consider the perspective of living in the face of God, embracing godly virtues, recognizing our calling and blessing, translating this into words, actions, and ambitions, and realizing the divine countenance of the Lord in Jesus Christ has shined its favor upon us. Major point number two, Christian conduct in light of culture. This is what it means Peter has given us to live in a Christian way in the face of God. What does it mean to live in a Christian way in the face of culture? Well, first of all, it entails a fearless righteousness. Before I get into this, let me just pause for a, one more point of application. Which carries more weight with you, living in the face of God or living in the face of culture? You see, there is an incredible pressure placed upon any individual to conform to society in order to be in good standing 
with the affirmation and with the relationship of your sinful neighbors in incredible pressure. That is to say, if you are concerned with living before the face of culture more than you are concerned with living before the face of God, you will exchange one glory and authority for another. Do you get it? If living quorum Deo means that we conform one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God, we will have the strength and the courage and the conviction to live in spite of culture's pressures. However, if we do not embrace life in the face of God, then we will substitute the Lord of glory for a different God. And culture in its various forms and the various things it holds out will become we will begin to live in the presence of wicked culture of the world under the authority of every wind of doctrine or popular notion or popular opinion and for the glory of self or whatever the idol du jour is of the day. In other words, in order to face culture, you must live in the face of God. So how do we do so? First of all, it involves a fearless righteousness. The Christian life can, can thrive in the face of a godless culture when we embrace a fearless righteousness. Verse 13 and 14. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, you ought to have a confidence that is unafraid of the cost of righteousness. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, verse 14, you will be blessed. And then this admonition. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. God is calling you to a fearless righteousness. Now, harm suffered for the cause of righteousness is always worth it. This is something Peter knows in his own experience and from the words of his own master. This is a man who has been freed from prison by an angel, blinding the guards, releasing his chains, and supernaturally ushering him through the bonds that once held him back to reunion with the people of God. This is also a man who, history records, died for his faith. He knows that he has nothing to fear if he serves the one who, if it is his will, can deliver him from chains, blind his captors, and restore him to fellowship with the people of God if it is not his time to go. Also, this same man, led to his own death by way of persecution and the sword of a wicked government, can embrace that calling knowing God has a purpose in that suffering as well. In other words, Peter was learning in his, in his discipleship under Jesus Christ's fearless righteousness and is now teaching it to the church. What does he mean when he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Peter is not saying that, there, that no harm will befall you. Instead, the rhetorical question, let me suggest, is put this way. <clears throat> Who is there to harm you? Answer, no, cre <coughs> no credible, sane, or respectable, or fear-worthy person. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Well, there may be some, but certainly no credible, sane, respectable, or fear-worthy person. If you, embrace, if you are zealous for good, the title of our sermon, if you pursue righteousness according to what God says, and it is opposed by a wicked culture, you are opposed by those who are discredited. You are opposed by voices that are insane, have lost their reason. You are opposed by forces that are not to be respected and are not to be feared, either by respect or by terror. 
It's not to say you won't face opposition. It's to say that the opposition you face is absolutely discredited from the onset. And then secondly, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Second answer, no one ultimately speaking. Yes, they can threaten your body. Yes, they can cause you to suffer. But ultimately speaking, that is to say with respect to the assurance of your destiny in the next life, no one can harm you. No one can harm you if you are zealous for what is good. So what do these conclusions lead us to? Certainly a fearless righteousness. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you would be blessed. Now he adds to it. Not only is there no credible opponent to those who embrace the righteous call of God, but also if they oppose you, it's a blessing. So if the uh, suffering that you embrace as a believer is in fact a blessing to you. The apostles saw it as such. They counted it a joy to be worthy to suffer for Christ's own name. Then now we not only have no fear of them, but we embrace this, this time as an asset, not a liability. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. This is the fearless righteousness that we are called to when we realize the perspective that we can face culture when we realize we do so under before the face of God. We are under the authority of a greater king. We are serving the glory of a greater one, one who every other king will one day bow to, or their knees will be broken before his sovereignty. This is the fact that we have to encourage us. Godly suffering is a net gain. No one, ultimately speaking, can harm us if we are zealous for what is good. And certainly, even temporally speaking, no credible, sane, respectable, or fearworthy person will Stand against us so long as we stand and are, uh, for the Lord and are zealous for our godliness. Secondly, facing culture, we are to exalt Christ as holy. Verse 15, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. In facing culture, we are to exalt Christ as holy. What is uh, holy, or so what is the concept of holiness or something that is sacred? <clears throat> well, perhaps you could say this. If something's holy, it is above scrutiny. It's a law unto itself. It's possessing self-contained and self-evident glory or worth. In the Protestant, here's our second Latin phrase. In case you want to add to your uh, Latin vocabulary, let's see if I can pronounce this right. Norma, normans, non normata. Norma, normans, non-normata. That was a mantra that came out of the Protestant Reformation. Anyone know what it means? To put you on the spot, any of you Latin scholars? I had to remind myself in my study this morning. It means the following, the norming norm that cannot be normed. It is basically a claim of ultimate authority. That is to say, there is something that is holy and sacred, above scrutiny, a law unto itself, Self-possess- or possessing self-contained, self-evident glory that we proclaim, and it is the Lord and His Word. The Word and the Word made flesh. Sola Scriptura, the mantra of the Reformation, said simply this, that there is a norming norm, that means there is a standard that judges all others, and it is judged by no higher law. That's what the norming norm, of which there is no norm. It's a little confusing on the face of it. It simply means 
The Bible, the Word of God, is ultimate and authoritative. And it has no competition, and we should not consider anything as sacred except Christ alone. Christ and Christ revealed in His Word, that's what is holy, that's what is sacred. Now this will give you strength to face an ungodly culture. Notice the concept of the sacred or the holy is always present somewhere. That is to say, our wicked culture holds certain things as sacred. Yes, they certainly do. They have their own claims to ultimate authority. They may be education. <clears throat> Often that's spoke of, spoken of in sacred terms. <clears throat> science. You know, hashtag science. Every time you see an appeal, uh, let, uh, listen for a red flag. It's probably an appeal to authority, as if science were the norming norm by which all other norms are judged. Such is not the case, of course. Victim classes in the social conflicts that we find ourselves in, often victim classes are the highest appeal or authority, that which is sacred above scrutiny. Art, this is one I've been thinking about lately because so many artists that one time professed Christ have apostatized. I've listened to some podcasts that are very discouraging when you know, bands I used to listen to that ostensibly were making music for the glory of God eventually had to choose between following Christ and their art. And many of them chose art and proved themselves idolaters when they did so. Their once professed faith was nothing but a facade. What they held as truly sacred was their craft was their hobby, was their passion, was their pursuit, was this, uh, you know, art as a law unto itself. What a foolish idol. Well, all idols are foolish. Self-identity, self-identity, sexual identity, minority identity. That is a norm above norms that is often popularized, held sacred. You can't scrutinize it. In fact, California this week passed a law that required corporate boards to be made up of a certain amount of diversity, including you must add to your corporate board people of different unconventional, so to speak, sexual persuasions. That is to say, according to the scriptures, those who perversely embrace a sexual lifestyle in accordance and outside of the word of God, perverting that which God has ordered according to his holy truth, they are now required to be included to make up diverse corporate boards in uh, in California, and ironically, the rest of the state is burning with literal fire. Now take that juxtaposition, those <coughs> who uh, have their eyes opened. On the one hand, the place is burning down probably because they hold the environment as sacred as well. Oh no, you can't touch the forest. Mother's forest floor must be preserved at all counts. So instead of taking stewardship, now we're going to be dominated by the environment. And now instead of taking dominion over what God has put, <coughs> put us in charge of, we're going to become a victim of its very forces. And over here, the whole state's burning. And over here, we're welcoming hellfire with these unjust and ungodly rules. Why is this the case? It's because Christ has not been regarded in California law as holy. It's because Christ has not been regarded in American consciousness and culture as holy. But we, saints, members of the household of God, sojourners, elect exiles, are of a different stripe. We are to go out and give a reason for the hope within and why marriage must be held sacred and inviolable according to God's holy truth because we are called to stand in the face of a rebellious culture holding out Christ as sacred. Christ has ordained that the picture of marriage display his relationship to the church. As goes one, so does the evidence of the gospel in that human in, in a relationship. Peter has already spoken to this. Chapter 3, verse 1, wives, be subject to your own husbands. You might ask the question, why? Paul further answers it in Ephesians 5 by saying it's a picture of, or for Christ's relationship with the church. 
And so you pervert God's divinely ordered institutions at the cost of the gospel. And so we must fight for these things, facing, a God, facing an ungodly culture with fearless righteousness, holding out Christ as holy. This means that any opportunity where our faith is despised, marginalized, and opposed, we answer with a good conscience, with gentleness and respect, a reason for the hope that is within us. We need to be fighting Christians, but we need to fight with the godly virtues in mind. We don't need to have a double-minded, you know, jaded cynicism, self-obsessed, contentious attitude. We are to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind, but we are not to compromise the truth. We are to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, and to do so with a fearless righteousness, with gentleness and respect. Now, I'll admit to you, I'm, I would like to be the first to admit that it's difficult to keep those all in balance. A fearless righteousness, gentleness and respect. But let us pray that God would cause us to grow in these virtues because this is how we stand in the face of an ungodly culture. In so doing, <clears throat> we will shame the slanderers. We don't do so by saying shameful things, but we do so by demonstrating the foolishness of claims to the contrary by the superior, self-attesting, always consistent, ever-powerful word of Almighty God. Notice, when you are slandered, <clears throat> verse 16, do it with gentleness and respect, that is, defending your faith, <clears throat> having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. There's an incredible effort afoot in our culture right now to shame Christians, to shame <clears throat> your unprogressive ideas of ethics and morality, to shame your so-called ancient uh, practices and notions of right and wrong. But if you stand for godliness, in the end, California and perhaps the whole nation will burn if we do not repent, spiritually speaking, if not physically so. And who will be standing in the end? Those who are clothed in Christ's righteousness, who hear the words, enter into my rest, thou good and faithful servant, having been washed in the blood of the Lamb. This is the assurance that we have. So on that final day, even if we have to wait for the judgment seat of Christ, who will be the ones who are unashamed? Those who walked in righteousness, fearlessly, exalting Christ as holy, giving a reason for the hope within, even if they were scorned by the majority culture of their day. This is a way that the slanderers will be shamed. This is repeated, and this is a repetition from Peter's words before. One of the reasons we are to be subject to human institutions for the Lord's sake, for instance, in chapter 2, verse 15, is to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You might ask, what's the most powerful argument against the foolish naysayers of today who exalt wickedness everywhere we turn? Well, you put to ignorance or will you put to shame the ignorance of foolish people and you put to shame the naysayers when you give a reason for the hope within, when you do so with gentleness and respect, and when you seek to model a fearless righteousness even among a people who as yet do not appreciate its power. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-6, that's that passage where Paul instructs us to take into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. He reminds us in this passage that the weapons of our warfare are unconventional, yet they are mighty to dethrone strongholds. Our weapons are mightier than the conventional ones that we see, you know, a physical sword in hand and so forth. These, 
things that we have studied even in our text today. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a fearless righteousness, exalting Christ as holy, giving a good defense of the faith, putting the ignorant and the lawless to shame by a testimony of righteousness. These are unconventional weapons, but they are powerful to the destruction of wicked strongholds, and they will, in due course, bring them down. They are mighty to dethrone pagan ideals. Uncompromising commitment to the gospel, wielded with gentleness and respect, will defeat the most formidable of enemies. Of course, I love that picture of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, where the most formidable world leader, his ignorance and foolishness is evident when he's immediately eating grass. And I think of COVID-19 and this various, you know, things that we're absolutely afraid of and have captivated the fears of an entire people, even the world, as a similar means that God has used to reveal to us that we are frail, fallen, and weak, and fragile, and we are prone to disease, and death is just a cala one calamity away, one breath away. And in that day, when the day of reckoning comes, either personally or at the end of history, there will be those who stand without shame before the Lord because they trusted the righteousness of Christ. And then there will be those who are now shamed, hearing those words, depart from me, I never knew you, because they did not stand the only place where it is safe in the redemption that is purchased through Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. Finally, this morning, virtue is suffering. We face an ungodly culture successfully embracing fearless righteousness, exalting Christ as holy, shaming the slanderers through our godly actions, and then finally, by embracing suffering as a virtue. Verse 16, do this with gentleness and, and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And notice verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Do you guys, kids, have you ever played the Would You Rather game? No, yes. So basically, Peter is giving a Would You Rather scenario. Would you rather be punished, despised, rejected, and chastised by a pagan society who says you're stupid and ridiculous and you're unloving or arrogant for your Christian beliefs? Or would you rather be chastised, despised, punished, and rejected by the Lord of glory? This is the question in verse 17. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Better to suffer the sideways glances, the persecution, the marginalization, and the rejection of a culture who has rejected Christ than it is to suffer the judgment of God because we embrace the paganism and unrighteousness right along with them. Now, virtue is suffering. Not only is suffering a virtue in this context, but it is also a blessing and a calling. We have said as much already. And our faith can be encouraged when we realize that Jesus Christ modeled for us purpose in pain, if you will. We've already read 2, 21 through 23 to this effect, but notice our very next verse in our text. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We are called to suffer, yes, but don't forget, 
Christ also suffered. Again, demonstrating that there is redemptive purposes in suffering, both in Jesus' suffering and, by extension, in ours. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. How did Christ think? Well, Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So you arm yourself with the same way of thinking that God has purposes in the struggle to live righteously with fearless righteousness in the, in the face of a hostile culture. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. Part of the purpose of suffering is to sanctify us, and we hear that in that text as well. And then chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, we'll close with this example. Rejoice, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. And if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And there, a great place to close, summarizing many of these topics in further language in the epistle. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he need not be ashamed, but he can glorify God, realizing that this is something quorum deo, before his face, that God has purpose in it, and that these purposes include being prepared for an eternal weight of glory, being further sanctified to reject sin, embrace the Lord, to be used as a gospel ambassador to show people the strength of faith and the light, even when it is challenged by the worst tactics and enemies and weapons the world has to offer, and to model for the lost that there was purpose in Christ's sufferings, that he endured sorrows because God had a plan, that in the crucifixion of his body and in the spilling of his blood would be the redemption of his people. So in 1 Peter <clears throat> and at the Lord's table, we see purpose and suffering illustrated. And this is something that should greatly encourage you today. As you approach the Lord's table, if you are a believer in this room in mere moments, remember that when Jesus faced the cross, he faced the worst suffering that any human being will ever uh, no, sorrows and sufferings that no mere human could ever, uh, could ever imagine bearing. But when he did so, he did so realizing that the purposes of a sovereign God would be accomplished through his act on Calvary. And what did he accomplish? The washing away of our sins. He absorbed in his work on Calvary, it was propitiation. That, was, that means he was the wrath-absorbing sacrifice in our place. He secured our reconciliation with the Father such that his very body and blood pictured here as now a covenant meal that welcomes us into the presence of Almighty God. So this is all proof that God has great purposes in difficulty and Jesus Christ is the chief evident or Jesus Christ is chiefly evident or is the chief evidence of this fact. So today as we mentioned before, according to Genesis 18 and according to 1 Peter, we have a covenant meal before us. Re recognize as you approach the table the precious price that Jesus paid 
and the glorious promises and the great endurance that we can glean from his word proclaimed from the scripture and his word dramatized at his table. Let us transition in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the great exhortation and encouragement for our faith that we draw from your holy scriptures. I pray that you would give us grace to translate it into fearless righteousness for your name's sake. That we would be bold in proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the sole means of salvation for every lost sinner who would but repent and believe. I pray, Lord, as we approach your table, that you would encourage and strengthen and equip us, Lord Jesus, to stand strong, realizing that we do so before your face. As we recognize this, we confess that our entire life is lived in your presence. And so we pray that we would acknowledge your authority and that we would do all to your glory. Whether we eat or drink, we would do all to the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.